I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Gaza, Israel-Palestine, the Hamas attack that happened on October 7th, and related issues. This time we have a very special guest. He is a highly esteemed voice in the international relations community, a columnist for foreign policy, and a professor at Harvard University, Stephen M. Walt. Much of the conversation to follow is based around his latest foreign policy column entitled, Israel Could Win This Gaza Battle and Lose the War. We'll discuss what he means by that and much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Stephen M. Walt. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've spoken to in the past. I hold him in very high regard. Stephen M. Walt, who is a columnist at Foreign Policy and Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. Uh, I'd ask how you were doing, Stephen, but I I think this is a difficult time for anyone who has been uh, following the events in the Middle East. Uh, But maybe you could give your initial thoughts on what has transpired. Uh, Well, it's it's a horrifying series of events, and one can only have enormous sympathy for the lives uh, that were lost in Israel, Uh, you know, over a thousand, uh, maybe two thousand civilians, uh, some of them in really quite barbaric ways. And now for the lives of uh, those in Gaza, innocent Gazans who are being uh, bombed and, uh, you know, uh, facing all sorts of uncertainty and misery, uh, compounding the many 
years of misery they have already endured in Gaza. So I think anybody who looks on this and isn't, you know, somewhat sickened by it, um, you know, has has lost, I think, uh, any sense of empathy or sensitivity uh, to the plight of people on both sides. So your latest piece in foreign policy is entitled Israel could win this Gaza battle and lose the war. I, I think that that's an interesting and sort of attention grabbing headline for people. Why do you say they could win this Gaza battle but lose the war? Well, what I say in the article is there are many cases where militarily superior uh, adversaries uh, nonetheless do not succeed in accomplishing their political aims. They're defeated by objectively weaker uh, opponents. And there's no question, you know, Israel is much stronger than Hamas, despite what Hamas was able to do uh, a week or so ago. Um uh, you know, Israel is a uh, modern, wealthy, powerful country, the strongest military in the region, has nuclear weapons. Uh, and what it is now doing to Gaza shows that it is objectively much stronger than Hamas is. Hamas was very clever, had a clever strategy uh, for exploiting some mistakes uh, that Israel had made, uh, obviously an intelligence failure. But that doesn't change the ultimate balance of power between Hamas and Israel. Uh, nonetheless, my suggestion there was that um, even though I think at the end of the day, Hamas will suffer uh, great damage here, if Israel overreacts, if the consequences for ordinary uh, innocent Gazans are seen as you know, increasingly horrific, uh, as disproportionate even to the uh, horrible losses that Israel suffered, um, then uh, you know, some of the things that Hamas may have wanted to achieve uh, might be realized, and namely, uh, you know, bringing greater uh, international attention to the plight of the Palestinians, pointing out that Israel's treatment of Palestinians, leaving aside Hamas, uh, has been, uh, you know, cruel and in violation of international law. Um, and so in terms of the larger political objectives, and remember, conflict is ultimately, you know, violence, war is all ultimately about political objectives, uh, that if Israel mishandled its response uh, to this, it could end up, um, you know, actually losing out in a political sense uh, to Hamas, not in a military sense. Could you speak to that a little more or elaborate on that uh, of, of how Israel could lose out? Well, if you think uh, again, um, the if you consider the objectives of the Netanyahu government, uh, the objectives of the Netanyahu government has been to completely marginalize the Palestinians, um, to keep them divided. Uh, in fact, to make sure that Hamas and the Palestinian Authority were at odds with each other and to prevent under all circumstances the creation of a Palestinian state, a, a genuine viable Palestinian state on the West Bank. Uh, that's Netanyahu has devoted much of his political career to that uh, objective. Um, and certainly the cabinet he now leads uh, has been dead set on that objective uh, since that cabinet was formed. Um, if in fact the end result of this is to wake up enough people um, to say that this situation cannot endure, that the fate of 7 million Palestinians has to be settled, has to be resolved. And the only way to do that uh, without creating a situation of either permanent apartheid, 
which is horrific to contemplate, or the further expulsion of Palestinians, which would be a crime against humanity. If you want to avoid those two options and you want Israel to remain a democracy, you're either going to have to create a Palestinian state or you're going to have to create one state in which Palestinians have equal rights. So that's not something the Israeli government has ever really wanted to entertain. And that's the kind of political outcome here that I think Netanyahu would regard as a complete defeat. It's interesting. But, I know I know you mentioned this in the article, but uh, th- there's been talk in the past of a two-state solution. I just spoke to INS Lustig, who uh, used to be a big supporter of that, but has recently written a book called The One-State Reality, Paradigm Lost uh, from the Two-State Solution to the One-State Reality. And I, I think that you know, a lot of people assume that this is just a fringe view, the one state reality view, but I think it's gained a lot of traction and that in a lot of ways, the two state solution has uh, sort of fallen by the wayside. Can you comment on that? Yeah, uh, my uh, evolution is very similar to Professor Lustig's, who, by the way, is a absolutely uh, terrific, wonderful scholar of the region. Um, and I, that I was a strong supporter of the two-state solution. I saw it as the best of a series of difficult options, but far superior to all of the alternatives. And, you know, well up through, I think, 2010, uh, I was continuing to favor that, support it. I participated in a study group that released a report calling uh, for a two-state solution uh, back around 2010 or so. Um, But like uh, Ian, I have come to the conclusion that it's no longer a viable possibility. It's no longer a realistic option. It would be the best option, but the uh, a series of things. One, the continued expansion of Israeli settlements has made it almost impossible now to create a viable, contiguous Palestinian state on, on the West Bank. Uh, and secondly, demographic trends inside Israel uh, are pushing against this as well. Uh, the Israeli population is shifting to the right politically. Uh, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox are having far more children than their secular uh, counterparts in Israel, which suggests that over time, that view is going to be more politically uh, salient in Israel as well. So even though I think the two-state solution would have been the best outcome, I no longer think it's possible. Let me just add one little asterisk there, though. You know, human imagination can go anywhere. Uh, sometimes people do change their minds. They rethink their positions. They make radical shifts in their thinking in response to events. And it is possible uh, that, you know, there'll be a sort of a sufficiently large change of mind or change of thinking in Israel, possibly in the United States, possibly in other places, and the two-state solution gets resurrected. Um, I don't see movement there yet, but you know, you never know. You mentioned earlier that with regards to this latest attack, Hamas has sort of uh, put the attention on the Israel-Palestine issue once again. And in your foreign policy column, you write, This latest tragedy confirms the bankruptcy of U.S. policy toward the longstanding Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Could you get into the reasons uh, for that bankruptcy and and where did U.S. policy go wrong on Israel-Palestine? Yeah, that's a a very good question. I mean, I want to make it clear, by the way, that um, I think what Hamas did, uh, you know, on October 6th constitutes war crimes uh, and should be uh, universally condemned. 
uh, you know, occupied or oppressed populations do have uh, rights of resistance in international law, but those rights of resistance also are governed by legal principles, and in particular, uh, the innocent civilians should not be attacked, etc. Uh, so I'm not in a, for a moment defending what Hamas did. Um, so the United States has basically monopolized the peace process ever since the um, signing of the Oslo Accords. We were going to be in charge. We were going to mediate this conflict. And uh, three American presidents, Clinton, Bush and Obama, all declared that the American goal was a two state solution between Israel and the Palestinians. They all failed. Uh, they all failed actually pretty abjectly. Uh, and as we've discussed a moment ago, the two-state solution is now farther away than ever. And remember, this is happening in a moment. It's the unipolar moment. The United States is the strongest country in the world by far, and it has enormous potential leverage over Israel and over the Palestinians and over other countries in the region. We really are the only game in town when it comes to great powers. So it's a real puzzle at first, you know, if you step back to say, well, why wasn't the United States able to pull this off, especially if a two-state solution really was the best outcome for all concerned, including Israel? And I think those American presidents did believe that. Um, I think the principal reason, it's not the only reason, but the principal reason was that they were unable to put pressure on both sides and they were unable to put pressure on both sides, primarily due to domestic politics here in the United States and the political impact of the Israel lobby and groups like AIPAC and others who guaranteed that Congress would continue to support Israel no matter what and guaranteed that any president who actually tried to put pressure on both sides, not just on the Palestinians, would face enormous problems back home from those groups. And, uh, you know, as we've seen in many other aspects of policy, well-organized interest groups sometimes can have a disproportionate impact. And the impact in this case uh, stifled American diplomacy and led to the repeated failures under three different presidents. I might add that, you know, what we said when I wrote a book about the Israel lobby was that we thought this was bad for the United States, but it was also bad for Israel itself. And I'm afraid, and I say this with no pleasure whatsoever, I'm afraid that some of what we said was vindicated last week when the failure to have achieved a just peace between the two peoples led to this horrific attack. There's a lot of anger, as far as I can tell, in Israel right now being directed at Netanyahu. I've seen, you know, viral videos of, uh, you know, survivors of the Kibbutzberry attack saying, you know, this will just go on forever until we find a political solution uh, that Palestinians and Israelis can agree upon. And also, of course, you have these polls that are indicating a lot of dissatisfaction with Netanyahu. Uh, the the Israeli people don't feel protected. What do you think that entails uh, for Netanyahu? And I also wanted to ask you, uh, do you think there's just a problem uh, when it comes to this issue? It seems like Israel-Palestine, uh, different parties are always trying to kick the can down the road and uh, a political solution is never really reached. And it just means that the cycle of this violence will continue uh, for the foreseeable future for that reason. 
Well, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a very accomplished escape artist. And so, you know, he's been written off a number of times before and has always managed to find uh, ways around it. But I think this is uh, an extraordinary crisis uh, in terms of his political leadership uh, as well. Um, I mean, it, it, first of all, you have to remember that Israeli society has been deeply polarized since his return to power and his announcement of this so-called judicial reform. You've had large, massive demonstrations in Israel, you know, on sort of a weekly basis uh, against this as well. So there was already uh, a really very polarized situation. And now he is prime minister at a moment when Israel su has suffered the worst attack, uh, you know, depending on how you want to count it, since the October War of 1973, or conceivably even the War of Independence back in 19. Uh, in 1948. So this is an extraordinary failure. And it's quite clear that part of the failure is his responsibility. I mean, not just because, you know, sort of the buck stops at the top, but there were actions his government was taking, including moving troops out of the areas near Gaza and over to the West Bank because of things they were doing on the West Bank, etc., that left Israeli citizens more vulnerable. So there's an enormous anger directed at him. There is also a fight going on inside Israel to sort of point fingers. So Netanyahu's opponents, of course, want to pin all the blame on him and the very far right members of his coalition. The far right members of his coalition point the fingers back the other way and say, no, it's the moderates who you know, undermined our readiness, undermined our unity as well. So there's a certain amount of that going on. I would just remind you, though, that after the 1973 war, where there was a similar intelligence failure and Israel was caught by surprise by uh, Egypt and Syria, uh, Golda Meir was prime minister. She survived for a while. But then there was a commission of inquiry, the Agronaut Commission, which looked into the failures, pinned the blame on her government, and it was the end of her career. It didn't happen immediately, but it uh, happened eventually. And it also paved the way for the end of sort of the Labor Party's monopoly on political power in Israel and the emergence of Likud as an important political force as well, um, clearly contributed to that. I say all of this just to say that the, the reckoning in Israel is probably going to take some time, but it's hard for me to see how this doesn't damage Netanyahu, and possibly even some of the things he has stood for uh, over the fullness of time. I also mentioned, and I know it was a very inarticulate way of putting it on my end, um, and may maybe you can offer pushback on it, but I do feel like it could be argued that uh, there has been too much kicking the can down the road when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Uh, I, I, that said, it, it's hard to come to a solution. So uh, what do you make of that criticism that this is bringing to light the fact that at some point we need a political solution for this? Yeah, I actually, I think that's a very good point. I, I'm sorry I didn't address that. Um, I think one of the main reasons that has, has continually been, you know, as you say, the can's been kicked down the road is that people understand that this conflict has to be resolved someday. But at any given point in time, there's some political issue that seems more important right then. Uh, it's not something you can solve in a week or in one meeting or one phone call. It's an extended process. And even if you got an agreement, say, for a two-state solution, if we go back to that dream, um, 
that's not going to be implemented overnight. And the implementation process is going to be quite difficult and contentious as well. And so if you're an American president or an Israeli prime minister, you know, you're always sort of tempted to say, yeah, I'd like to make progress on this one. Um, but I've got some other things I need to work on first that are going to have to take priority over that. So to give you a good illustration, Barack Obama came into office in 2009, and he really wanted to push for it. He really believed in it as well. And then he discovered that he also wanted to pass Obamacare. And he, and he had to decide between those two goals, because if he pushed Israel too hard, he was going to lose some of the votes he desperately needed to get Obamacare through. And that ultimately proved to be more important. And by the time he'd gotten Obamacare through and turned back to Middle East issues, it was too late. He'd lost the opportunity to do it. He had to worry about the next election. And so it got kicked down the road one more time. I just have uh, three more questions, uh, if you have the time. Uh, You write in your article, if U.S. politicians from both parties were less craven, they would rightly condemn Hamas's actions and at the same time denounce the cruel and illegal acts that Israel routinely inflicts on its Palestinian subjects. Uh, For people that are just becoming aware of Israel-Palestine, because I have a lot of people emailing me saying, what books should I read? What what videos should I watch? what would you say are these acts that you're referring to with regards to Israel and the grievances that Palestinians have? Um, well, the principal grievance that Palestinians have is that, uh, first of all, many of them lost their homes in the War of Independence, uh, you know, fled in fear. Um, and there is in international law the principle that if you fled in the context of a war, you have the right to return to your home. You, you're not allowed to be ethnically cleansed, which is effectively what happened in 1948. So that's been an issue forever. They've been living uh, in a sort of unequal refugee status uh, since 1947, uh, 48. Uh, secondly, or, or I should add their descendants. Um, Secondly, this happened again in 1967 during the Six-Day War when Israel conquered uh, the West Bank. Um, And then it's been continuing to happen as Israel has gradually populated the West Bank. There have been various moments where where Palestinians have risen up in, in opposition to that, the First and Second Intifada. And Israel, of course, cracked down very hard on those. Um, in Gaza, Israel has uh, fought several uh, short wars against Gaza, basically uh, punishing Hamas for firing rockets or doing uh, various things. Most of the suffering, of course, being visited upon uh, innocent Gazans as well. And by the way, the population of the Gaza Strip you know, is about 3 million people, uh, half of whom are under the age of 18 right as well so you add all of that and more and the the finally something you know americans should understand palestinians are a people with a sense of national consciousness and like nations all over the world they would like to have their own state that they can govern and take care of their own affairs and protect themselves uh, one of the reasons peoples or nations want states is to provide security for them and stateless nations like the Kurds or like the Palestinians don't have anyone to protect them. For all those reasons, I think you see uh, the Palestinian you know, grievances against Israel, again, which does not justify acts of terror against Israel. What do you say when people ask this question? I, I've seen people say, well, why do the Palestinians 
need a state. There's so many Arab states. There's 50 other Arab states. Why can't they just go to one of the other Arab states? Well, first of all, some of those Arab states don't want to welcome them. Why should the uh, Arab states have to take in Palestinians because of policies being inflicted upon them uh, by um, uh, you know by by Israel? And second, uh, why should any people be forced to leave the areas that they regard as their homelands that that they have ties to that go back hundreds of years? Uh, as well, why should they be forced uh, to leave as well? Again, there's reasons why there are uh, laws against ethnic cleansing in international law. Um, we recognize that this is a horrific thing to impose upon others. The last two things I wanted to ask you was, uh, first, uh, you mentioned your book that you co-wrote with uh, John Mearsheimer, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, which uh, you know, I, I think that book uh, surprised a lot of people. I know Shabignu Brzezinski uh, promoted it, uh, who was a real force in U.S. foreign policy for years. What do you think the biggest misunderstanding people have about uh, the Israel lobby and U.S. foreign policy is your book uh, with John Mearsheimer? Um, well, the, the book was misrepresented and mischaracterized by many people. But I think the biggest misunderstanding people had was, um, and maybe there were two, but the biggest one was that it was a book that was anti-Israel. Uh, our One of our central claims was that the influence of the lobby had been unintentionally harmful to Israel, as well as not in America's interest. These groups like APAC didn't do this because they wanted to hurt Israel, obviously, but the policies they had favored had had this effect uh, anyway by making it harder for the United States to work constructively for a, a lasting peace. Um, the second you know, great misconception is that we were invoking these old anti-Semitic tropes about secret Jewish influence or cabals or anything like that. First of all, we pointed out that not all uh, American Jews were supporters of the Israel lobby, that some of them were Christians, so-called Christian Zionists, that it referred to the political positions you took, not your ethnicity or not your religion. And more importantly, that what groups like APAC and others were doing was nothing conspiratorial at all. It was American politics, which is all based on interest groups. We said in the book, this is as American as apple pie. They're very effective at doing the same thing that the NRA and the farm lobby and big pharma and Wall Street do. They go and work in the political system to advance their interests, and they do it pretty much right out there in the open. So those are with the two big misconceptions that we were anti-Israel, whether we were somehow trying to channel a bunch of old and rather despicable anti-Semitic tropes. And both of those things were completely false. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and this was actually submitted to me by a listener uh, when, I, when I told him you were going to be on the show, uh, he wanted to know, and I know this is kind of a maybe a left field or deep cut question, but I know that you were trained in part by um, the great thinker, uh, Kenneth Waltz, and he was wondering what you think Kenneth Waltz uh, would make of what's currently happening with regards to Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. That's a it's a great question. I was actually teaching uh, Ken's great book uh, last week in in my class. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that was a theme of a lot of Waltz's later writing, when he especially when he wrote about policy issues, was that you know, great powers, when they are unchecked, uh, often misbehave in various ways. And the United States was the greatest of all great powers, and at least for a period was 
almost completely unchecked. Uh, and therefore, it went off and did a variety of things, often thinking it was going to make the world better and often not understanding that it was you know, sort of more like an elephant blundering through the jungle and leaving a lot of destruction and ruin in its wake. Uh, Waltz believed, as his theory depicts, that power does need to be checked by other power and that unchecked power tends to do a lot of damage uh, as well. Um, so it, it's funny, but I think by the end of his life, he actually thought the United States would be better off and maybe the world would be better off, not if the United States was weak, but if the United States had to think more carefully about what it was doing, because it had to worry about how others were going to react, as as opposed to being able to sort of do whatever it felt it wanted without consequences. I, I want to let you get going. Uh, just in closing here, I, I know emotions are very high right now for a lot of people. And I, I think as an analyst, an international relations scholar, you're able to really think things through and speak to uh, you know the better angels of our nature when it comes to our rationality. So what do you want people to get out of this conversation? And how do you think uh, people should be thinking through the events unfolding without getting pulled into sort of the, I would say, uh, worst aspects of our nature that came out in the aftermath of 9-11? That's also a good question. I mean, I have the, the great good fortune to not be uh, you know, directly and intimately involved there. I'm not uh, living in Israel. I'm not living in Gaza, etc. I have friends in uh, on both sides of this particular divide, and I've I've been deeply troubled by everything that's happening there. And again, not and I'm not as directly connected or affected. But uh, I have thought about this, and the way I've tried to think it through myself is to say that given how uh, tragic this situation is and given how polarized the conversation has become, uh, given the extreme views that you can find on both sides, I want to try and only do or say things that will strengthen the sort of forces of moderation, the forces who are trying to work for a, a just uh, peace here. I don't want to do or say anything that provides ammunition to people who are sympathetic to what Hamas did. I don't want to provide ammunition to uh, people in Israel who think the only solution is to uh, commit horrific acts against innocent Palestinians. I don't want to do anything that empowers the extremists who have made this problem much worse over time. And I want to do everything I can to strengthen uh, people who are, I think, working uh, working for the greater good. Now, do, do I you mean, think that applies to the U.S. as well? I mean, because I, I, I worry that I don't want to have another reaction like we had to 9-11, where I, I think people got pulled into the moment and made very catastrophic decisions. Yeah. Um, well, again, we were not hit, hit directly here. I think the Biden administration is now trying to keep the lid on this in various ways. And it um, it's doing what <laughs> I, I, I've written something new, which will come out soon, which is that it's doing what it does best. It It is um, trying to solve a problem that it was at least partly responsible for. Um, but, you know, they are using the mechanics uh, or the sinews of American power and the tools of government to try and keep this contained and bring it to a, a close. The real question is whether they're going to be able to do anything that doesn't make this just one episode among 
a long series of episodes that goes back into the past and will lead forward into the future. Um, the question is whether or not this can somehow be some kind of critical turning point that leads in a more positive direction. And that just remains to be seen. Well, thank you again, Stephen and Walt, for coming on Parallax Views. Your expertise is always very much appreciated here. Nice talking with you, too. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen M. Walt. If you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.